welcome to the Nautocast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I am your host, Jeff, better known as Brittany Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 86th episode of the Nauticast titled Lake of Fire, an analysis of a Clash King's Aria 4 in which the pig-faced shit knight Armory Lorch wipes out Yorn of the Night's Watch and most of his charges. It's not all bad news, though. At least Arya saves Rorge and Biter. Is that good news, Emmett? There's always a little silver lining to these clouds in A Song of Ice and Fire, isn't there? <laughs> you are absolutely right. It's a nice little silver lining we have there in the form of uh, Rorge and Biter. But at least Jacket survives, so that's a good thing. This episode, as always, is brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King Wolfman, Zack, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Word of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord Jean, Master of Coin, Archbishop June, Healer of the Lesser Paxes, Ragged Michael, Warren of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonstone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, Warden of the West and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Jim that was promised, the High Bearded Priest, the Blue Ringed Octolink, Lord Jake, Assistant to the Hand of the King, Lady Zena Valerian, Hedrical, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Lord James Stormboard, Warden of the Worldwide Werewood, Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorm, Richard, Sealer of Bravos, Kelly, Ward of the Beast and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Ryan, Lord Anonymous, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, a priest of the Drowned God, and finally the King's Cook, Nali Ali Master. I did, I fucked it up one more time. He, he actually messaged me to give me the right, correct pronunciation. The King's Cook, Nali Ali Master of Cannoli, whatever. I, I, give up. I fucking give up, man. Close enough, sir. We'll take it as a victory. And thank you to all our counselors, as always. Yes, thank you guys very much indeed. Our spoiler week, as we say in all episodes, will potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winsor sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, a TV show. Anything and everything. So, normally here we would read a question and respond to it, and we do have an excellent question for this week, but we're going to save it for our final discussion for this episode. A few weeks ago, Jeff promised that we'd be reading some of our reviews on Apple Podcasts, and we don't want to make a liar out of Jeff. <laughs> Thank you. So let's do that now. Uh, a comment we got from Mike and Ike, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, because all the other Mike and Ikes were taken. Life-changing. Jeff and Ernie have become the mid-40s lesbian moms I never had. So true. So poetic. <laughs> so pure. That, that, what do you think, Jeff? I, I love it. I, I, I love being a mid-40s lesbian mom. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not a lesbian in my mid-40s or, or a woman, but I mean, I love it. I love the idea of it. Spiritually, anyways. though, in terms of what's inside, Jeff, I think this is accurate. This this is actually very, very accurate. So thank you, Mike and Ike, for the fantastic uh, iTunes review. Really appreciate it. The next one comes from Silverwing Flyer, who says, one plus two equals less than two? Which, and then he goes on, Nauticast offers great content and insights into every aspect of A Song of Ice and Fire. The plot, the characters, the overarching themes, and ready techniques. Jeff's quote-unquote readings, e.g. Catelyn's Moonlight Sonata from Game of Thrones, often highlight specific aspects of writing that take my breath away. Oh, sorry. Uh, Emmett provides articulate. God, I wasn't even given clearance for that one this time. I just snuck that one in there. True, you gotta get a permit next time. <laughs> Emmett provides articulate and wonderful, profound, big-picture insights on characters and themes. Emmett and Jeff balance each other's pacing and perspective to make for a content-rich podcast that holds my attention. Five, and he then puts it in numbers. Five, with an exclamation point, stars, guys. Well, thank you very much, Silverwing. That's an excellent review. It makes me feel warm inside. Thank you so much, Silverwing, but try not to confuse Jeff with math next time. I know you were trying to get him to say one plus one equals greater than two, but this... That's just beyond the poor illiterate boys. So come on, know, know your audience next time. <laughs> True that. Our next review comes from Joe. Repetitive whining. If you want to listen to a couple of guys whine about feudalism and overread the text, then this is the show for you. Well, thank you, Joe, for perfectly articulating what our, our, our target audience is. It's always useful to have free marketing done for us in that regard. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Like every mm -hmm. review is, is a review. It just brings us more and more fame or notoriety. In this case, notoriety. And, you know, we are going to continue to whine about feudalism because it sucks and it's the worst possible system for these people. <laughs> and it ends up oppressing millions of people on Westeros. And if you don't, and you think it's cool, I think you should probably get a better soul maybe possibly it doesn't mean we figured out how power works let's be very clear it's not like and, and that's why Emmett and jeff should be in charge and make all the decisions no no that's just as bad an idea but it's it's hard to read these books and embrace the power structure that's under the under the microscope but you know to each their own you're entitled to your incorrect opinion you are absolutely entitled to every incorrect opinion possible so 
Thank you, Joe. Thank you in quotation marks, Joe. Our next review comes from Sergeant Kevlar, whose title is Running with Wolves. And he says, the only opportunity I have to listen to podcasts is during my daily runs. Ever since I've found this podcast, I've been running farther and farther every day so I can listen a little longer. These guys are forcing me into fitness. I love this podcast. Well, I want to congratulate you for doing much more running. That's really good. Exercise is an excellent use of your time it prolongs your life it's good it's i promise you Emmett. it's good i try it sometime try it. i've been told this many times never believably but you know what if, if you if you win the olympic medal out of this we would be happy to take credit we will happily take credit for that in fact just play it over the broadcast and over the speakers at the olympic games are they gonna be in tokyo next time i don't know i don't i don't pay attention to the olympics <laughs> but yeah we'll broadcast the nightcast podcast over the speakers at the olympics when you're winning the uh, the race that would be great that would be your entry music in our little uh Welcome to the Nutcast. Uh, there, there's an there's a breathtaking image for the ages, Jeff. I love your ambitions. <laughs> I gotta have some sort of ambition, right? Some sort of ambition. <laughs> well put. So our final comment we're gonna read for this episode comes from Zero Zero Goose Zero Zero. If you love a song of ice and fire, you will love this podcast. A Song of Ice and Fire holds a special place in my heart. Reading these books has got me through some difficult times in my life. Recently, I was diagnosed with a semi-rare condition that renders my left leg paralyzed. I have been depressed for months. When I discovered this podcast, it gave me the same joy and spark that reading the Song of Ice and Fire novels gave me years ago. Emmett and Jeff are quite literally my lifesavers. After listening to this podcast, my health has even gotten better, doctors crediting my mental state for improvements. Today, I am proud to say that my leg has regained 100% full use thanks to this podcast. JK, still paralyzed. <laughs> but now I have hours of killer chapter-by-chapter content from two of the greatest minds in the Song of Ice and Fire fandom. Amen, brothers. Well, thank you so much for that, that comment. It uh, does our hearts so good. Our, our heart, we have one heart, I guess I've decided. One heart, it does both. Yes. It does both of our hearts so good to hear about our podcast contributing to anyone's life in a difficult time. That's really the, the best you can possibly hope for. But also to give them that same joy and spark, as they say, that reading the Song of Ice and Fire novels gave them. That's, that's I think, a goal we've always had from the start is to try to capture the, the joy we feel reading these novels and pass it on. So glad to hear it. Yeah, it's it's really amazing, and it, it, this one, well, this this review was left back in 2018, but I just thought it was my, it's still my favorite review. I'm sorry, I have to have favorites uh, because I'm an American, <laughs> and I've like, I know we actually do things. We have favorites in this this country. And yes, this is this True. is my all time. European favorite. countries are never known for having favorites. No, no, that's not at that's all. an American invention. Only the Wild West came up with liking <laughs> a thing more than another thing. Ah, American exceptionalism. Oh man. Yes, it's great. So thank you, Goose, so much for the review. We really appreciate it. Hope that your health has continued to improve and that you'll uh, hopefully gain full health and, and uh, restoration of your of the use of your left leg. So appreciate it. Thank you for the review. It means a lot. Absolutely. And, and thank you so much for the reviews, everyone. We, we read all of them and keep them coming. It helps people find the podcast and helps our little community grow. Absolutely. Amen, brother. Thanks you for the great reviews. And for those of you who are tuning in live now, our next Patreon-only episode titled Botchman, our analysis of the 2009 Zack Snyder film Watchmen with some analysis of the first episode of HBO's Watchmen is out for all of our small council patrons and will be coming out throughout the week for our High Lords and Ladies, Kingsguard, Sworn Swords, and poor fellow patrons. And if you are listening on the release date, it's already out now for all $5 and above patrons. So if you guys are listening on Monday, someday in November that I can't remember off the top of my head, it is out now for you guys. So check out that episode and our 20, yes, you heard that right, two, zero, 20 other bonus episodes at patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. But enough about Patreon, enough about reviews. Really appreciate all the patrons that we have and all the reviews that we're getting. We really appreciate it. Let's turn our attention to Arya's fourth Clash chapter. When we last left Arya, Yorin's party of Night's Watch recruits had made their way north from King's Landing and had arrived in the Riverlands to wolves howling and distant screams carried on the wind. Holy shit, yikes. Let's see how things pan out in this edition of Arya Stark Sees the War Crimes in this synopsis of Clash of Kings, Arya 4. From a march through hell last week to a march into hell this week. Arya and her friends reach a blue-green ribbon of river witnessing the vegetation and a water snake moving across the water. It's nice. Beautiful, peaceful. No, no, wait, this is a George R. R. Martin. It seemed a peaceful place until Koss spotted the dead man. There, in the reeds. He pointed, and Arya saw it. The body of a soldier, shapeless and swollen. His sodden green cloak had hung up on a rotted log, and a school of tiny silver fishes were nibbling at his face. I told you there was bodies, Lamy announced. I could taste them in the water. 
Yum. Yorn orders the body search to see if there's any valuables, and then he rides out to the river to see whether it can be forded. Tragically, as we'll see by the end of this chapter, it cannot be forded here. But maybe there's a better place to ford elsewhere, question mark? So Yorn orders some of his boys to scout upriver and downstream to see if there's any place to cross. Everyone needs to hold up and wait here in this very, very safe place while the boys go out and scout. Searching the dead man nets a few copper coins and a lock of blonde hair tied in a red ribbon. Hot Pie and Lamy then proceed to have a mud fight in the river, and Roar screams at everyone to unchain him. Arya, meanwhile, observes a man named Kurz as he catches fish with his bare hands. It's just your normal, Yorin's marching into goddamn hell type of day. And listen up, boys, savor this moment, because this is going to be the final happy moment for most of your very short lives. The men Yorin sent out return around noon and tell Yorin that there's a burned out bridge to the south. Yorin decides that they could probably ford the river with the horses, but the wagons would never make it. So he draws a map of the ground, saying that they're south of the God's Eye. They can't go north and west due to all the smoke and fires that way. They can't go west as they can't cross the river with their wagons, and they can't go east back to the King's Road. So where are they going to go? Yorin moved the stick up where the line and circle met. Near as I recall, there's a town here. The Holdfast Stone, and there's a lordling's got a seat there too. Just a tower house, but he'll have a guard and might be a knight or two. We'll follow the river north. Should be there before dark. They'll have boats, so I mean to sell all we got and hire us one. Ultimately, this plan relies on a couple of, on a, on a couple of, shall we say, interesting assumptions. That they can find boats on the God's Eye, that they can buy boats if they can't find them, that they can get new mounts on the other side of the God's Eye. Oh, and also that they can take shelter at Hall, where, um, Lady Wen is at? Yeah, Yorn has been watching the evening news of late. Hot Pie is the first to sound the alarm. Uh, aren't there ghosts up at Hall? Maybe we don't go there, but Yorn spits saying, that's for your ghosts. And then they mount off and gallop gallantly in the direction of shitty, shitty destiny. As they mount, though, Arya, continuing the trend of previous point-of-view characters, thinks about the history of Harrenhal, adding in the wrinkle that Old Nan used to tell stories about how people who go to sleep at Harrenhal sometimes wake up all dead and burned, just like Heron the Black. But she, like Danny from last week, ain't afraid of no ghosts. Besides, there was only knights. There would only be knights at Harrenhal, and they would take her home and keep her safe. Yeah, it's not just Sansa who has a view of knights that needs to be dispelled, people. The party moves along the North River Trail. The party moves north along the river trail and sees abandoned houses and ripening fields of vegetables unattended by any farmers. They gather what food they can and keep moving. Finally, they come up on the town that Yoren was talking about, and it too is deserted. Yoren sat on his horse, frowning through his tangle of beard. Don't like it, he said. But there it is. We'll go have us a look. A careful look. See maybe there's some folk hiding. Maybe they left a boat behind or some weapons we can use. Yorn orders everyone to go searching through the haunted house town in four groups of five apiece. Arya goes with Wath, Gendry, Hot Pie, and Lamy. They move through deserted streets that freak the fuck out of Arya, and me too for that matter. She wonders why everyone just up and ran. When a jump scare in the form of a shutter bangs open, Arya reaches for Needle, but there's no one there. It's just the wind. Just the wind. When they see the lake, they gallop forward, hoping to find boats or something or someone. Instead, they only find one overturned rowboat in the lake. Lamy says they should check out the inn, but no, they're here to find boats. Sadly, the aforementioned overturned rowboat is the only boat in town. Ari takes the opportunity to wash off all the dirt in the warm green water, and hey, the water doesn't taste like dead people. Major, major plus. Ari wishes she could swim all the way back to Winterfell, but Wath yells at her to get out of the lake. They need to get back to Yorin to assist with the search. When they meet up with Yorin, it's mostly bad news everywhere. The town was as dark as any forest when Yorin and the others, and the others reappeared. Tower's empty, he said. Lord's gone off to fight, maybe, or to get a small folk to safety. No telling. Not a horse or pig left in town, but we'll eat. Saw a goose running loose and some chickens, and there's some good fish in the god's eye. And then everyone gets to argue about what to do now. Should they patch the boat rowboat? Build new boats? Well, as to the first question, the rowboat would only take four people across. And to the second, no one knows shit about building boats, so that's a no-go. Still, maybe they build maybe they build a raft. Yorin decides very, very consequentially to sleep on that idea. In the meantime, they're going to hide out in the holdfast to Arya's horror. Arya cannot keep quiet. We shouldn't stay here, she blurted. The people didn't. They all ran off, even their lord. Arya's scared, Lamy announced, braying laughter. I'm not, she snapped back. But they were. Smart boy, said Yorin. Thing is, the folks who lived here were at war, like it or no. We're not. Night's Watch takes no part, so no man's our enemy. And no man's our friend, Arya thinks. I mean, yeah, this is the part where you expect to be like, well, Yorin, way to be a fucking it dumbass idiot. But, you know, Yorin kind of has a point. The Night's Watch is ostensibly neutral in this conflict, any conflict, and... Okay, okay, I'll wait to defend my boy Yorin in the depth section. Yorin and the boys and Arya move out, moving to the hole fast, placing the iron bars down through the entrance. Arya observes that the walls were ten feet of unbordered stone. They find a plot device in the form of a trapdoor inside with a tunnel that leads out to the lake. Interesting detail, keep it in mind for the end of this chapter. They eat a chicken and some onions inside the holdfast, but no one's really much for talking while they eat. 
After dinner, Yorin divides up when everyone will be on watch and Arya catches the second one. Sleep proves fleeting for Arya, so she decides to do some sword honing. No, not that kind of sword honing. Get your minds out of the gutter. Hot Pie sits next to her and asks where she got the sword from. My brother gave it to me, she muttered. I never knew you had a brother. Arya paused, scratching her shirt. There were fleas in the straw, though she couldn't see why a few more would bother her. I have lots of brothers. You do? Are they bigger than you or littler? I shouldn't be talking like this. Yorin said I should keep my mouth shut. Bigger, she lied. They have swords too, big long swords, and they show me how to kill people who bother me. Hot Pie beats her tree at that, and Arya falls asleep, dreaming of a wolf howling. She wakes up with her heart thumping in her chest, knowing that something is wrong. She starts shouting for everyone to wake up. Everyone disbelieves that anything is amiss, claiming that Ari had a bad dream. But Arya shouts that it was a wolf that she heard. Someone is coming. Before they could hoot her, before they could hoot her down again, the sound came shuddering through the night only. It was no wolf this time. It was Kurz blowing his hunting horn, sounding danger. At that, everyone starts frantically donning clothes. Arya runs for the gate and passes by Jack and Hagar and Biter. Jack and yells at Arya to free him as he knows how to fight, but she ignores them, climbing up onto the catwalk. She reaches the wall, climbs partway up the wall, and sees what appears to be a sea of lantern bugs in the town. But it ain't lantern bugs. Then she realized that they were men with torches, galloping between the houses. She saw a roof go up, flames licking in the belly of the night with hot orange tongues as the thatch caught. Another followed, and then another, and soon there were fl- and soon there were fires blazing everywhere. Arya thinks it's about two hundred riders, but she doesn't know for certain given how the fire and smoke is distorting her view. Fact check: Tywin dispatches Amory with three hundred riders at the end of a Game of Thrones, but I certainly hope that the Brotherhood Without Banners has drubbed the bejesus out of Amory's party and that they're down to two hundred. <clears throat> All the same, they'll be coming for them soon. Then Gendry points out that a column of riders are approaching the are approaching the holdfast. They come up at the holdfast, demanding that the holdfast be opened in the name of the king. One of the recruits yells back, wondering which king they're talking about before being cuffed for his troubles. Yorin climbs to the top of the gate and yells that the the townsfolk are all gone, and that he's merely a recruiter for the Night's Watch, with recruits for the the Watch heading north. But the men below think Yorin and company might be part of the Brotherhood Without Banners. Ah, as for that, the sigil of the Night's Watch is black. Yorin raises it up to see whether it's black, to to show them that it's black for all of the Lancer men to see. Or black for House Dondarrion, called the man who bore the enemy banner. Arya could see its colors more clearly now in the light of the burning town. A golden lion on red, where Beric's sigil is purple, lightning bolt on a black field. Arya remembers that when she saw Beric Dondarrion the last time, he had rode off for Gregor Clegane, thinking that this was an event that occurred a long, long time ago when she was, quote, Arya of House Stark, no, quote, Arya the orphan boy. And Arya wouldn't know about lords, so she shuts the fuck up. Meanwhile, Yorm waves his banner all around, asking if they're blind. Can't they see that he's not a Dondarrion man? By night, all banners look black, the knight in the spiked helm observed. Open, or we'll know you for outlaws and league with the king's enemies. Yorin demands to see the Yorin demands to see the manager, aka he asks who's in charge of this rabble, and up steps a fat motherfucker with a pig face and a manacle on his shield, and this guy's name Sir Amory Lorch, who I really, really hate, and who really, really sucks. More on him later. He commands Yorin to open the gates in the name of the one true king, Joffrey Baratheon, which false. He says that this all while the town burns around them. So Yorin says, fuck off. Okay, he doesn't say that. I've just been watching a lot of succession lately. He says they're just recruits for the wall. They're no foes of the Lancers or Amory Lorch. Yorin says it's probably winking in the direction of Arya Stark, but we can't know for sure because it's dark. Look with your eyes, Arya wanted to shout the men below. Can't they see we're no lords and knights, she whispered. I don't think they care, Ari, Gendry whispered back. So Arya looks into Amory's pig face, using the method of, quote, actually looking with her eyes the way Cyril Farrell had taught her, and she knows that Gendry is right. Amory demands that they open the gates if there are no traitors, so that they can have a real quick look to make sure that there's no traitors. But Yorin holds fast against Amory. No, you can't come into the hold fast. Fuck off. So be it, Amory says. You defy the king's commands and so proclaim yourselves rebels, black cloaks, or no. Yorin says they've only got young boys in the whole fast, and Amory, who, by the way, is going to die like a fucking coward by a bear at the, late, at the end of this book, says they're all going to die. The quote-unquote knight raises a fist, and his spear comes flying through the air aimed for Yorin. Instead, it hits Wath through the throat, and he falls boneless from the walk. Storm the walls and kill them all, Samory Lorch said in a bored voice. More spears come out flying from the band of war criminal traitors below, and the sounds of war erupt from outside the walls as Arya yanks Hot Pie to cover. Torches fly next, and Yorin shouts, Blades! And for everyone to spread out and defend the wall. In NFL QB style, Yorin goes with a 3-3-5 spread defense, dispatching Koss, Yurik, and Lamy up front. Hot Pie says he doesn't know how to fight, and Ari says that it's easy, probably thinking about dropping her little stick with the pony in line. But then a hand clasps the top of the wall, and she instead remembers fear cuts deeper than swords. When at the top of the helmet reappears, she slashes hard with needle into the hand, and the man falls. 
Hoppa yells at Arya that there's someone behind and she whirls as a pirate cosplayer with a knife in his teeth swings his leg over the wall. She thrusts Needle through the middle of his helmet. But more men mount the walls using the unmortared stones to climb their way up. Yoran tangles up the knight who is carrying the Lannister banner with his own black banner. Yet still more climb. And Arya wishes that Joffrey was here so she could put her sword through his face. Super fucking metal, Arya. Love it. Four Lannister goons try to take an axe to the gate, but Kost dispatches them via arrow one by one. Dabba wrestles the dude off the wall, but she, but then he gets stabbed for his heroism. Lamy smashes mofos with a stone. Another boy named Kyle begs for mercy before a man with a wasp visual puts a mace through his face, which, you know, fucking war crime. Everything smelled of blood and smoke and iron and piss. But after a time, it seemed like there was only one smell. A skinny dude gets over the wall and Gendry smashes his sword against the man's helm, taking the helmet with him. Under the helmet, he was an older dude. And this guy looked scared. But even as Arya was feeling sorry for him, she was killing him, shouting, Winterfell! Winterfell! While Hot Pie screamed, Hot Pie! Hot Pie! Beside her as he hacked at the man's scrawny neck. Hot Pie! A war cry to send terror to the hearts of every motherfucking Lannister traitor. But even as we stand in awe of Hot Pie's heroism, Arya sees that the Lannisters are moving into the courtyard below her. She jumps down to fight alongside of Gendry as, death, as the death blossoms around her. And then Yoren was there, shaking her, screaming at her face. Boy, he yelled, the way he always yelled it. Get out, we've lost. Hurt up all you can, you and him and the others. The boys, you get them out, now. But, but wait, how the hell are you going to get everyone out? The trap, he screamed, under the barn. <laughs> Thank goodness for the plot device, George. Love it. Yoran runs off to the fight, and Arya grabs Gendry, and they're heading for the barn. They scoop up Hot Pie and the red shirt Lamy as well, and then they run through the heat hot as a furnace into the barn. The air swirls with smoke with a, quote, sheet of fire from ground to roof. In the barn is the animals they rode in scream, kick, and rear, knowing that the fire is coming for them. But then Arya sees the three people in the cart, Jacken, Rorge, and Biter. Boy, called Jacken Hagar, sweet boy. The trapdoor was ahead and the fire was spreading fast. Arya forces the crying girl, Lami, Hot Pie, and Gendry through the door, and then she asks where the axe was. Gendry says it was where he left it on the chopping block earlier, so Arya runs into the courtyard and continues to witness further Lannister war crimes. She saw she saw Koss throw down his blade to yield, and she saw them kill him where he stood. She finds the axe, though, and she grabs it, but then a mailed fist closes around her arm. She spins and places an axe cut into the man's leg, never knowing what the man even looked like. Going back into that barn was the hardest thing she ever did. Smoke was pouring out of the open door like a writhing black snake, and she could hear the screams of the poor animals inside. Donkeys, and horses, and men. A donkey was on fire when she came through that ring of fire. Arya throws a hand over her nose and mouth as she smells all the burning flesh and hair of the donkey, and it becomes thick in the barn. She hears Biter screaming. She crawls towards that sound. Finally, she gets over the wagon and tosses the axe into the wagon. Rorge catches it as Arya boogies away. She hears the axe crashing against the wood behind her, and then she hears the bottom of the wagon rip loose. Arya dives into the tunnel, dropping five feet. She tastes mud and doesn't mind the taste. At least it's cool in here while above. While above ground, it was death, fire, and blood. A great crash erupts behind her and above her, and Arya kisses mud of the tunnel floor and then strangely, strangely cries. For whom? She could not say. And that is Clash of Kings, Arya 4. Battle chapter, battle chapter, <laughs> battle chapter. What do you think of this chapter, man? We had some minor complaints about the slow pace of Arya's first few chapters in The Clash of Kings, which is why we bundled them together into a single episode, but you can't argue with the payoff. Arya 4 is a perfectly executed horror movie of a chapter, ramping up the tension and dread of those earlier chapters before strapping them to dynamite, lighting the fuse, and running like hell. <laughs> up to now in A Clash of Kings, George has told us about the war crimes spreading across the Riverlands rather than showing them to us. Now we see the real deal. And it's an unsparing horror show of soldiers slaughtering civilians, including children, without reason nor hesitation. Like all good horror writers, you see George working to cement anger at the world in both his characters and his audience. And that process has only begun for Arya, as we'll see in her chapters to come. Yeah, you know, the first three Arya chapters kind of exist as travelogues. And I defended them in, the, in episode 75, as we talked about, you know, about 11 weeks ago. And Arya and, the, and her friends are heading north into the Mouth of the Beast. First-time readers, they don't know that, though, right? I mean, so they'd be forgiven if they came into Arya's fourth chapter and been, oh, here we go again, Arya's on her way up north, just traveling in a bunch more times. We're going to end this chapter with no action happening. Except, except that George, to use a very, very overused but appropriate phrase here, he really kind of subverts her expectations, you know, in Arya 4. You know, the chapter opens... Pretty similar to its forebears. You've got the party continue to move through the countryside. You've got the need to get away from war. You've got the natural obstacles. The party has to think their way past. But then there's the decision to head up to the town on the god's eye. The haunted house feeling of the town. But hey, wait. Now that we're back to having a camp meal in the band and hold fast. But no one wants to talk. 
then Arya has a wolf dream. She's had it before, right? She had it in Arya 2 and Arya 3. But this time, she wakes up in a fright. Someone is coming, and then it's war. Red, red, war. You nailed it. It's that sense of dread that really makes this chapter what it is. The chapter as a whole has this... This, this sinking, sickening sensation of a trap slowly closing around Yorin and his pack. And yeah, George throws us for a loop right from the get-go. He begins the chapter with some of his most serene imagery. The river was a blue-green ribbon, shining in the morning sun. Reeds grew thick in the shallows along the banks. And Arya saw a water snake skimming across the surface, ripples spreading out behind it as it went. Overhead, a hawk flew in lazy circles. Lazy circles, because no one's in a hurry. Nothing is particularly <laughs> urgent. This is one of the few times in the series that George really kind of stops and takes this radical ecstasy in the, in the natural world. And another great example is the time uh, when the beginning of Jamie's first chapter when he's just out of prison and he's thinking about the sunlight and how he kind of has, has, hasn't gotten used to it and feels in love with it again. But then George immediately brutally undercuts this like utopian image. It seemed a peaceful place until Koss spotted the dead man. And that's that's immediately George showing you the reality beneath this this beautiful bucolic landscape. And then you get Lamy bragging that he could taste the corpses in the water. And that really stood out to me on Riri that he's bragging about this. Like, obviously, it's it's a sign of corruption and death spreading throughout the land. But it's also a sign of his his persistent innocence in face of it, that he can only interpret this as a thing he can win. Like, he's a kid on a road trip, like, trying to win a, a game of license plates out the window. Of course, innocence is not the same as likable, mm-hmm. and uh, Arya is losing her innocence, hence the emphasis on her seeing the body. George wants to let you know that Arya is, is taking this all in, it's having an effect on her. And this corpse indicates, of course, that, you know, man has sullied the friendly face of nature, and it's a marker of the war that our heroes cannot escape. Right, I want to say, like, this chapter works almost as Tolkien pastiche. You know, we've got travel chapters, which end up being a lot of what's found in Lord of the Rings and in The Hobbit, too. I'm, I'm reading The Hobbit right now with my youngest daughter, which is a lot of fun. But a lot of it's just them just kind of walking up and down the hills and all the observations they make there. And there's kind of some thematic similarities that we see between Arya's early class chapters and Tolkien's overall work. You've got the similarities in man despoiling nature. But, you know, what's interesting is that it isn't technology in A Song of Ice and Fire that's interrupting nature. It's it's man himself, right? I think that's that's the thing that we're seeing here is we're seeing that man is killing man. It's both an offense against nature, which is very Tolkien-esque, and it's also an offense against the state of nature, which is, you know, the way the natural order is supposed to work things, the, the way the natural, the natural order is supposed to work. It wasn't supposed to happen that you'd have dead men floating down the river, making the water taste bad, poisoning things for years and years to come. This is all completely out of it's it's out of the, out of bounds really and it makes it this makes these chapters very fulfilling to me but also makes them a little bit sad as well that we have all this death and destruction that's basically flowing through this this huge thing that's a great distinction to make that it's adopting the structure of the Tolkien travelogues but the tone is a little different and i think that's i bet that's a deliberate move on George's part because if you look at like Brand's chapters in the Storm of Swords, it's the Tolkien structure and the Tolkien tone. Like the first part of the Night of the Laughing Tree chapter when it's just them moving through mountain valleys and looking down on the hushed world in the fog, it's it's very Lord of the Rings. So I, I think that George is trying to, as you said before, kind of stand on Tolkien's shoulders and push these kinds of stories in, in some, some different directions. But we then have Yorin laying out in detail how the road is narrowing before them, that it's leaving them no destination but Harrenhal. And the, the irony being, of course is that Harrenhal is currently the headquarters for the Reavers who will descend on Arya and company in this chapter. So even if they had escaped Sir Amory's infernal gaze, they would have wound up in Lannister clutches regardless once they got where they were going. There's no mercy to be found. There's no way out of the war. That's the constant drumbeat throughout these early Arya chapters. And this is why it works so well for me that Yorin's killers aren't the Lannister goons he confronted at the inn in an earlier Arya chapter. Because you you get this good perfect mix of agency and happenstance and i think you need both which i think is something george does a good job with throughout the series like on the one hand yorin has backed himself and his charges into this corner in part because he was trying to avoid said goons catching up to them on the king's road and that's how they ended up in this town with no way out and no defense because he had to get off the king's road on the other hand no one could have predicted that amory and his wrecking crew would show up just to burn an empty town because Mm -hmm. Why would you do that? <laughs> so there, it's, it's not on Yorin to have seen that coming. And I think at that point, these soldiers are more like emissaries of cruel fate than they are rational political actors. And accordingly, you see signs of doom looming throughout this chapter. You have Hot Pie's invocation of the ghosts of Harrenhal. You have Arya's memory of old Nan's wonderfully grisly stories about said ghosts. You have empty cottages and then empty farms and then the empty village. It's, it's like Westeros's emptying out from the bottom up and you're being shown that process and then you know Arya hears spooky ghost sounds in the village Ooh. 
But, you know, it's all adding to the tone. It's all adding to the mood. All yeah. of which adds up to nails on a chalkboard for Arya. It's telling her that they shouldn't be here and they need to get the fuck out as quickly as possible. And she's got a rational basis for it. When, when Lamy makes fun of her for being scared, she has this great comeback. I'm not, but they were. Mm-hmm. And so we have to take that seriously. And so much of Arya's story is about fear. And yes, fear is indeed the mind killer. But it's also important to be able to tap into it and understand it, as Arya does here, to take other people's fear into account when you're making your own decisions. I agree. And and I think, like, the fear that Arya is experiencing is extremely natural. I mean, there's there's a lot that's, that's indicating that this place is not the place that they want to be right now. I also think it's interesting um, in terms of how the show does it, because the show has it that the same gold close ago who had confronted them earlier earlier in season two, then meet back up with them and then take uh, Sir Amory Lorch with them. And I don't know that that's necessarily the best turn in watching in a retrospect. I feel that this kind of impending sense of doom works better as kind of a... Not, not not a force of nature because it isn't a force of nature, but it's just like there's a randomness to it that makes it it's, much yeah, more... Yeah, it's the balance. There, yeah. I think there doesn't have to be a dose of randomness to it. And I get why in TV you're looking for concision and just visual shorthanded recognition. I get why you use the same people. But I like it that it's not because it gives you the sense of a big picture, that there's no yeah. safe haven. There's no rules you can live by. It's not like Yorin and his folks would have been fine if he'd never pissed off the gold cloaks. They probably would have run into someone like Amory Lorch anyway. And I think it's I think it's important to have that balance. But Yorin's counter-argument to Arya's well-based fears is, of course, the same as it ever was. Thing is, the folks who lived here were at war. Like it or no, we're not. Night's Watch takes no part, so no man's our enemy. As before, George uses Yorin of the Night's Watch as a, a tragic figure of both righteousness and folly. A good man blind to his bad world. He just uh, asserts this and assumes that even though the people here in this town didn't want to be part of the war, as he admits, he assumes that they can decide to not be a part of the war if they want to. He never considers that his information about Harrenhal might be out of date. Like, the Riverlands are ablaze with war at this point, but he just assumes Lady Went is going to be there with a cheerful smile, welcoming him and his to Hearth and Harvest. And that is because, it's not because Yorn is, is not a smart man, it's because to acknowledge that is to admit two terrible truths. One is that the Westeros he believes in, the one embodied by the ideal of the Night's Watch, does not and cannot exist in the middle of total war. And the other is that he has led not only himself, but his charges, including children, including one child in particular he feels duty-bound to see home, straight into the belly of the beast. It's that same disillusionment that was the central focus of book one, but now in the context of the omnipresent violence that exploded at that book's climax. Yorin goes down insisting that he has the authority to make Amory Lorch turn heel and leave those kids alone, because... He's the Lorax, goddammit, and he speaks for the realm. <laughs> and ultimately, he's as much a bygone figure as the Lorax, as those figures in Old Nan's stories, believing that the realm Aegon the Conqueror forged when he burned Heron the Black will protect him. And Arya is learning the grimmer reality. No man's our friend, which is much more important. Neutrality in a civil war makes you more vulnerable, not less. And while Yorn's at fault for blinding himself to that, I think it is ultimately more a critique of the War of Five Kings creating that situation more than it is a critique of him. Would you agree with that? I do agree with that. And I think it finally dawned on me as you as you were talking about your point about uh, why why Heron the Black story is in there. Because it's in this RA chapter specifically because it's showing how the rules of warfare changed for Heron the Black, who had built this magnificent fortress that would have stood over all of the Riverlands and likely subdued it for centuries and centuries and centuries, but ain't gonna subdue dragons. Dragons can fly over walls, right? Because, I mean, that's that line from Old Nan, right? Because dragons fly. Like, that's how she includes every story about, about Harrenhal, which is great. Which is great. It's showing the, the changing face of, of warfare and Aegon the Conqueror's time, but it's also showing us the changing face of warfare in the War of the Five Kings, because... That bygone era you were talking about, it's not that long ago. It's like four months, three, three, four months, maybe <laughs> True. tops. I mean, granting that the scale of the Lannister war atrocities in the Riverlands is far and above like Westerosi norms of warfare, Yorin's been traveling Westeros his entire life from Dorne to the Wall, as he says in Arya 2. And in those travels, he's operating with the assumption that his status protects him from the dangers of the road. To, to kind of reemphasize a point from the last time when we visited with Arya back in episode 75, Yorin's belief that the Night's Watch neutrality, he believes that it safeguards him, works similar to how Catelyn will think that the, that guest right will protect her mm-hmm. and Rob at the Twins. That no one in Yorin's life, save for the one boy who attempted to murder him, as Yorin was talking about in Arya 3, <laughs> has ever attacked, threatened, or denied Yorin the courtesy of safe conduct is because, you know, it's sourced to Yorin having, you know, an ostensible neutrality. You know, given that George has decided on the Red Wedding at this juncture of the story as a means of ending Rob Stark's claim and, of course, ending Rob Stark once and for all, 
I think the upcoming, as we're going to talk about here momentarily, the, the battle portion of it, a Lannister abandonment of the cultural norm is groundwork for the Red Wedding in the next book. But just to kind of also reemphasize something we talked about back in episode 75, the small irony in all of this is that Yorin ain't exactly neutral here. He's sheltering the daughter of Eddard Stark, safeguarding her from the Lannisters. Now, that's in no fucking way means or form to justify what Amory Lorch is about to do here. You know, for lack of a better term, Yorin is a non-combatant in this war, and Amory has no idea that our venerable Night's Watch recruiter is secretly sheltering Arya of House Stark. But the greater question George wants us to ask about the Night's Watch and about its ostensible neutrality is, is it a value worth upholding when innocents are endangered? Yorin chooses to save Arya at the end of A Game of Thrones, and Jon, in A Dance with Dragons, will choose to save, quote, Arya, rather than give her over to a monster in the form of Ramsay Snow, slash Bolton. But that's not actually Arya in A Dance with Dragons, and the actual Arya that will return to Jon in The Winds of Winter or Dream of Spring or Dream of Spring will have been through a lot of life experiences with that one of with one of those experiences that shapes her form and forming her outlook being this very event from this chapter the end of this chapter you made great points there about uh, connecting the story about again the conqueror to what's going on here the changing rules of war and then connecting that to to John's struggle and Arya and dance that's just great you can see George working similar ideas into this chapter he's going to come up with later I love love finding that stuff on reread and yes even before the battle we are beginning to see the effects of the long road on Arya and she's very much in a liminal state in this chapter she's like on the threshold of the abyss like glancing in she's caught between the values represented by her desire for home and the nihilism inculcated by everything she sees along the way the struggle is reflected, of course, through the prism of her mentors. Yorin believes in the Watch like she believes in Winterfell. But Yorin is not like a spotless, glamorous archetype, fresh out of the songs like Sirio. And he dies less spectacularly, although no less heroically. And you can still see Arya invoking Sirio in this chapter. And spe- spe- specifically, in the name of using his unreal skills to master unforgiving realities. Like you have Kurz catching a fish with his bare hands, and Arya... Deciding that, yeah, she can do that. She could, <laughs> why? Because she, she, she caught cats and fish don't have claws. It's, it's because Sirio taught her to catch cats. And Sirio is this magical, mythical figure in her mind. So that makes anything he did superior to this random guy, even though catching fish is really, really hard. And this dude clearly developed that skill over a long time. Or later on, much more dramatically in the battle, when Yorin and Amri are quote-unquote negotiating. <laughs> Look with your eyes, Arya wanted to shout at the man below. Can't they see we're no lords or knights? She whispered. I don't think they care, Ari, Gendry whispered back. And she looked at Sir Amory's face, the way Sirio had taught her to look. And she saw that he was right. Again, Sirio is now myth, but Arya? Arya is now stuck in the mud with Yorin, because Yorin is the much more, like, grounded, down-to-earth mentor figure compared to a, a swashbuckling legend like Sirio Pharrell. And you have Arya trying to wash herself of that mud, quite literally, when she gets into the god's eye and starts washing herself. And... Talks about how the, the water still feels warm, like summer, that doesn't feel like tears. So you have nature speaking to safety and rebirth and end to all this trauma. And Arya thinks to herself that she wants to swim home. She thinks she can swim home to Winterfell. And of course, geographically, no, you can't do that. <laughs> and that speaks, of course, to this enduring childishness, this, this wistful naivete that hasn't quite been beaten out of her yet. And it's not dissimilar to Yorin's own wistful naivete about the realm he wants to believe in. Right. And again, we're getting a little bit of Tolkien-esque thinking here in terms of like nature washing away kind of the the dirty horrible things that that these people have experienced but i mean we're also getting this kind of similar to sansa stark feeling from a game of thrones in Arya's fantasies of going home swimming home for that matter you know we have sansa begging joffrey to send her home when she knows that he's not going to send her back seeing then when at the top of the red keep over the fields and the forests and the oceans the mountains atop the castle yearning for home you know this is this is just 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 to put this out there this is the preeminent motif of our entire cast of stark and snow point of views always always yearning for home fantasizing implausible scenarios where this will occur you know think bram thinking that he's going to go see john and ride out to him in bran's fourth chapter from game of thrones bran's fourth bran four think of this chapter too already thinks that she wants to swim home back to winterfell she can't physically do it but she fantasizes about it and i think that's a constant returning motif for the starks that they all want to get back to winterfell and i think ultimately they all will Absolutely. And it's interesting, of course, that, yeah, that Arya and Sansa, who are total opposites, as we all know, both still want to believe in true knights showing up to save the day, almost like they aren't total opposites after all. <laughs> and it's, again, Arya's in this in-between position where she realizes more than Yorin does 
that watch neutrality won't protect them from whoever made these villagers run for their lives, but she still clings to her own myths. Hot Pie was being silly. It wouldn't be ghosts at Harrenhal. It would be knights. Arya could reveal herself to Lady Went, and the knights would escort her home and keep her safe. That was what knights did. They kept you safe, especially women. She still thinks that. She still thinks you can just go up to a policeman on the corner and tell them what's wrong and everything is automatically going to be okay. Even though she's starting to see signs that that's not the case, it hasn't really crashed in on her like it will at the end of this chapter. And it's so revealing and sad that she's like, Hot Pie, your myths are just absurd. My myths, however, the <laughs> mythical fantasy figures I believe in, those are totally legit and part of reality. When in, in fact, true knights are as rare on the ground as ghosts. And that's something Arya's going to gradually come to understand over the course of her story. And as with Sansa, the lingering belief in songs is always linked to desire for home, as you say. That's what their fantasies are always about. But when Hot Pie tries to bridge the gap by talking to her about her family, Arya feels the need to shut him down because she has to keep her identity a secret. She can only let it out in the context of battle, the context of bloodletting, yelling Winterfell at the top of her mm -hmm. tiny lungs. And as Genji will reveal to her later, even that brief expression of identity is enough for Hot Pie to catch on that quote-unquote Ari isn't as quote-unquote he appears. <laughs> it's like herself is being squeezed out of her, like juice. Just like Yorn's belief in the realm is being squeezed out of him, and just like all these people are being squeezed into this trap, it's this, this iron crucible that will not let any of them go. And I think it's interesting, too, that we have both Hot Pie and Arya representing two sides of the same coin, fantasy elements that are being interpreted by the small folk person in the form of Hot Pie and by the noble class in the form of Arya Stark. The, this is an interesting distinction between these two, but when pedal comes to metal and you've got noble and small folk alike and you've had war on the horizon, they're all going to get thrown into the meat grinder. And I think that's the thing that kind of unites them terribly, horribly at the same. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not, true. Not You're right. 100% right. And all, all, all these chapters, themes and imagery, everything we're talking about come to a head when the soldiers arrive. Arya is warned of their approach by the howl of a wolf. And the wolf, of course, represents home and family, house dark, etc., but also the outright predators that she met on the road, the wolves in Arya 3, who really did not seem interested that Arya happened to have a dire wolf in her family's banner. <laughs> they were going to be happy to eat her regardless. And, yeah, regardless, like this warning, it doesn't save anyone. So what good is it? What good is it to have this, this prophetic connection to the wolf house to let you know dangerous come if it's not enough time, not enough with power to save anybody? Again, that, that liminal state... And that the soldiers strike like a force of nature. Arya compares them to lantern bugs and uh, fallen stars. But of course, George includes that little moment where they're setting fire to the trees as well as the houses. Just to emphasize, as you said, that they're not part of any natural cycle. Mm -hmm. That fire consumes and leaves nothing. They're here to salt the ground so nothing grows. Now, Tywin thinks of this purely as a message, as a terror with a purpose, to be sent to Rob and his Riverlord allies. With no consideration at all for what happens to the Lamis and Hot Pies of the world. But that's self-sabotage. He's leaving his family with nothing over which to rule. No home for the people to come back to. No peace worth having after the war is done. He'll tell Joffrey that you need to, you know, serve your enemies fire and steel when they defy you, but when they go to their knees, help them back to their feet. What he doesn't seem to understand is that his fire and steel tactics often make it so that his enemies will refuse to go to their knees because they have nothing left to, to, to gain back. You see that in the Riverlands. You see that in Dorne. It's one of the big flaws with Tywin Lannister's approach to, you know, everything. Right. And as we know historically, and people such as Stephen Atwell, but of course, because of course we are the Stephen Atwell Tribute Podcast, have pointed out, even in the most horrific ways that, you know, Chevalier has used, has been used, it never reached the scale that Tywin Lannister is authorizing his men to utilize. And I mean, consider too that this town is a ghost town. It's abandoned. There's no civilians hanging out in the town. No one to like put the fear of Tywin Lannister. I was about to say God, but Tywin Lannister in their hearts. <laughs> Same thing. All the farmers have boogied on out. So Tywin's heartless, cruel, and war crime objective has already been achieved, right? People have all run the fuck away. They're, they're gone. They're gone. There's no one left to kill or to terrorize here. And yet these assholes burn the town anyways. And they're bored by it. Like, Amory Lord should be like, yes, kill them all. Do, just do what you need yeah, to do. Yeah, it's not even making fine. him happy. Right. It's just like, yeah, whatever. This is this is just kind of like, this is a, what, what day is it? Thursday? Okay, yeah, we, we kill all the It's burn the Thursday. town day, exactly. Right. Right. And this, to me, is distilled nihilism, providing zero benefit other than just destruction to these bored soldiers and their who-gives-a-shit commander. You know, it reminds me of a scene from the great movie Full Metal Jacket, where Joker is flying into Vietnam aboard the helicopter, and the door hunter is just there, just massacring civilians one by one. Not for any strategic or tactical benefit, not because they're enemies or potential enemies, but fear the, but for the pure nihilism of killing people. And this is what's going on here. They're not interested in spreading Tywin Lannister's 
message message yeah well message if you want to call it that his fucking war crime they're interested in just killing and destroying because that's an end unto itself to these guys and that is the definition of nihilism in the real world as well as in a song of ice and fire i think yeah the reference to full metal jacket is wholly appropriate because of course george is drawing from his understanding of vietnam and just vietnam in pop culture when he writes about war in a song of ice and fire and only Arya Underfoot is providing eyes on this side of the Game of Thrones and the Clash of Kings. As we've said before, all the other POVs are kind of in their their rarefied spaces as they negotiate with each other. But here we're down on the ground. We see what the war looks like for most of the people. And Yorn confronts these soldiers, of course, waving his Night's Watch cloak as a banner. And that's just the most Yorn thing ever. <laughs> that perfectly sums up his character. Like, if war is, in terms of political imagery, a collision of banners then this is Yorin trying to carve out a neutral protected space in the shadow of his black banner. But, as, as one guy says, all banners, look black by, all banners look black by night, as in all banners die during the long night, all banners turn black and the war doesn't matter anymore. And Arya very perceptively sees that Lorch's true banner is fire. That he's not open to ideological disputes, he's just here to burn. That's the, that great ironic moment when Lorch is listing his titles and Joffrey's titles and Tywin's, and he's the true king while the village just burns behind them. Moreover, of course, the Lannister men just leap to the association with Beric Dondarrion, because claiming neutrality gets you lumped in with the guerrillas who are fighting all sides. And indeed, Beric believes in an idea of the realm not dissimilar to, Yorn, to Yorn's. He will articulate that when he finally shows up in the flesh in Arya's story. The difference is mindset. Beric has already died once, expecting <laughs> Lannister thugs to respect the king's banner, and he will not make that particular mistake again. Still, I think, I think Yorn is right. To refuse Amory and his thugs' entry. I think Lamy is wrong when he says we should have just yielded, they would have spared us. Because Yorin can tell that Amory is not genuinely giving him a chance to spare himself and his charges. Amory just wants an excuse to attack. He wants a fig leaf. He wants to be able to proclaim them rebels and thus non-persons. That's why he bothers to articulate. You are now rebels. It doesn't matter that you're in the Night's Watch and now we have the right to kill you. Yorin's way at least gives his charges a chance to defend themselves rather than just allowing their killers to walk in and butcher them without so much as a fight. Do you, do you think uh, I'm right on that count? Do you think Yorin was was in the right to to not give in to Amory Lorch here? One hundred percent correct. I think people can go back and be like, "Oh, Yorin should have done this and that," but in my mind, there's no way that Amory Lorch isn't trying to kill everyone there. He's just looking for easy entry into the holdfast itself to kill people, so he doesn't have to assault the walls itself, which he ends up doing anyways. I think you know when we look at a character like Amory Lorch, we're not looking at a guy who's coming in with. You know, the, the right principles, the, the right morality that you want to negotiate with this guy. It'd be, it's like negotiating with the character with this. Would you negotiate with the person who put a sword through Rainey's Targaryen, who threw a three-year-old boy down a well, according to the Rain Tarbeck Rebellion? This, this isn't someone who's, who's a, you know, a neutral arbiter that's going to be like, oh, yes, let me consider your points. No, I, I can see now that you're not actually part of the Brotherhood of Banners. Instead... These guys are all fucking war criminals, and Yorin can spot that, and he is absolutely correct in preventing these war criminals from entering into the holdfast itself. And again, that's a huge weakness for the Lannister side, not just the obvious immorality of it all, but even from a cold, detached take on their own interests, like, this makes it impossible for them to make peace. This makes it impossible for, them, for anyone to take them seriously as negotiating partners. We see this in A Feast for Crows when Jamie, who is at that point one of the most well-intentioned and trustworthy people on the Lannister side, shows up <laughs> at River Run. But why should the Blackfish trust him after the Red Wedding, after everything right. the Lannisters have done in this war? Why should the Blackfish trust that his word is worth taking seriously? Even if Kingslayer wasn't there to hang around his neck, the Blackfish probably wouldn't be trusting him at that point. And he would, he would have a good reason not to trust him. It's all so short-sighted and turns to ash in, in Tywin's hands. But... This is not a Tywin Lannister POV chapter. <laughs> this is an Arya Stark POV chapter. And one of the things I like about this battle scene is that Arya's arc keeps thrumming along beneath the surface. She doesn't just drop out. The mention of Beric leads to that brief flashback to her relative Halcyon days in the Red Keep before her father's fall. It's just so George can measure the gap so he can show you, ah, uh, she thought of herself as Arya Stark. Now she thinks of herself as Arya. That Sansa had that nice dress and they were fighting at the dinner table and now their lives are just so much different. And then you have Arya wondering why the Lannister men can't see that they're not enemies, that they're not an army. And it takes Gendry, who was raised among the peasants, to see the truth. They don't care. that the, the, the world you were taught about as a noble child doesn't apply now that you look and, and sound and smell like a peasant. And so much of A Clash of Kings, from the title on down, is about the kings posturing for each other. But it's so important that the first real combat we see in the book is not between their armies. It is one army turning on the people for the sport of it using the letter of the king's justice to justify their actions while violating its spirit on every level. Amen. And, and George goes for the gut 
as Yorin tries this last appeal to the world he believes in. Got me young boys in here. Young boys. Mercy for these kids. You're not going to butcher them, are you? And Amory looks him in the face and nods. Yorin's world comes up empty against the world Amory believes in, the one he and Gregor and Vargo Hote are making real on Tywin's behalf. Young boys and old men die the same. <laughs> and this battle, of course, can't ha- hope to match the big ones in terms of logistics or twists and turns when you compare this to the Blackwater or the escalating conflict at the Wall and Storm of Swords. Of course, this is going to come up short, and George knows that. He's not focusing on that. He's focusing on the intimate details that sear into your memory, the stuff Arya's going to be living with as a result of this battle. And that's especially appropriate, given that this is her first battle. This is a significant ramp-up from the violence she witnessed and briefly took part in back in Book 1. So you get these very cinematic shots, like the hand coming over the wall with the, with the detail of the dirt in its nails, or Yorin using his black banner to, to wrap around and kill the knight who mocked him for it. You get all this great fire imagery. It's glinting off stone and swords and the eye slits of Gendry's helm. It captures the feeling perfectly of the world burning down around you. I like that Jockin keeps up his role as like the one pop of color in Arya's otherwise deliberately visually drab a Clash of Kings chapter because he's the one who talks about red war because anytime Jockin gets a line, he's got to throw a color in there just because that's his role. And then, of course, Yorin appears to call Arya a boy one last time. Sniff. Pour one out. And, I know. And tell her to run. And it's, it's ironic given that Arya's story in A Clash of Kings feels like trapdoors opening up beneath her. What saves her life and those of her companions here is a literal trapdoor. <laughs> a trapdoor out of hell, no less. That's what Arya compares it to at the end. And Arya makes it out of this hell with her values intact. She insists on saving as many lives as she can, feeling even for the animals that are dying in the barn. Of course, while saving the little girl is unambiguously heroic, Saving Jockin is more ambiguous, and saving Rorge and Biter will have dreadful consequences down the line. But mm-hmm. it's it's really not fair to hold Arya responsible for that. She is just one red blood cell flying down the artery of this war. And that's what makes the chapter's end so devastating. Arya held her breath and kissed the mud on the floor of the tunnel and cried, for whom she could not say. Is she crying for Yorin? Is she crying for her family? Is she crying for that blonde hank of hair they found in that soldier's purse, that woman who's going to wait for him forever? There's so much to cry for in Westeros at war that she just can't choose. Yeah, man. I mean, that's amazing. As always, I'm, I'm, I'm everyone in the chat here on on YouTube. If you guys are watching on YouTube, is being like, "Yeah, this is amazing." Goddamn, Emmett is just tearing shit up. Keith J says so that's, that's oh, really shucks. awesome. You know, at this point in the, in the in the depth section, I would be talking about the tactics and the battles that that people use. I'd be like comparing it to like the Whispering Wood or the Battle of the Green Fork, but. This isn't a battle, really. Honestly, if you if you look at it, what's going yeah. on here? This is one person trying to survive a slaughter. There, there's no. I mean, yes, Yorin tries to put spread his guys out along the wall, tries to keep himself from from being overwhelmed. But there's no real question who's what's the ultimate outcome going to be. Yeah, there's no suspense as to who's winning. That's a good point. Right, and that's kind of what makes battles interesting like the green fork and the whispering wood and i think at the same time like you, this is not like a battle chapter I, I did say it was battle chapter battle chapter battle chapter at the beginning of this episode this is this is a slaughter chapter and the slaughter of this chapter results mm. in the death of lots of boys and lots of young men yorn as we'll talk about here momentarily and that's sad it, it's sad that you know common decency and norms of warfare don't protect these people we've got numerous people in this chapter attempting to surrender give up their arms put their hands up and yet they're just run through with a sword or a spear or they're hit with an axe as we'll talk about momentarily here these are all this is all talk, calling us not to be not to evaluate this as some sort of and then jamie moved his troops here and then rob the right around here yeah it, it's saying the boys are dying, and this is what warfare in Westeros has led to. Boys dying. Perfectly said. I think that's a great distinction that, that George makes elsewhere, like in the battle outside Astapor via Quentin in A Dance with Dragons when he's part of the windblown sellsword company at, attacking the quote-unquote yes. new Unsullied, and he realizes as he's fighting them, oh, these are just boys who are dropping their sword and screaming for their mother. This is a slaughter, not a battle. And that's a powerful point that I think George makes all across the, all across the series, but especially in this chapter. So, I think that about takes us to foreshadowing and groundwork for Clash of Kings Arya 4. We get more setup for my beloved summer home of Hall, <laughs> both in terms of its sinister reputation and its very specific political meaning for Arya. Hop Pie's eyes got wide. There's ghosts in Hall. Yorn spat. As for your ghosts, he tossed the stick down in the mud. Mount up. Which is a great illustration of the 
the forces of material and supernatural that are always conflicting with Heron Hall. You get the image of ghosts and then Yorn throwing a stick in the mud, like the most like grounded down to earth <laughs> action imaginable. And then you have Arya telling all the great stories of Heron Hall, and that perfectly captures what this location is about. Because this is the big new setting of the Clash of Kings, and George keeps bringing it up over and over in these early chapters before we even get there. And it gets across so well that it, it stands at the crossroads of so many things. The crossroads of the political history of Westeros. The crossroads of the magical history of Westeros. And the crossroads of Arya's own story. That she, this, is, this is the last place she assumes is going to be safe for her. You know what I mean? Like, after Heron Hall, everything starts to seem really suspect, and she's never feels safe behind curtain walls ever again after this. Right, and I think it's fascinating, too, when you think, look at how Heron Hall is built up. We've got it in Catelyn's chapters, we've got it in Tyrion's chapters, we've got it in Arya's chapters. The build-up is setting this place up in sort of the same way in Arya's chapters that Beric Dondarrion, who's not going to appear until A Storm of Swords, is consistently referenced by Amory Lorch in this chapter, by his bannerman here as well. These and Thoris Amir is also referenced here. So when they actually when these characters actually show up on screen, or the form or Heron Hall as a castle shows up on screen, we are well set up as readers to be like, yeah, we're really excited to get here and see what this place is all about. And that's great. I think it's I always say this, but it's always great writing on George's part to have this setup then pay off in such a masterful way because Heron Hall is fucking metal man like that place is metal and terrible and horrifying and just all the wonderful <laughs> things all in, in one place it is it is the perfect setting to come to after this chapter after george blows up Arya's clash of kings storyline the structure we thought it was in this memorable fashion heron hall is, is is a perfect place to regroup and we'll we'll talk about a lot of reasons why once we get there later in the book agreed there so how about that axe that Arya tosses up to you george right i mean that's that's could that be important i i I wonder, kind of. So this quote comes from Arya's fifth chapter, the next Arya chapter, which will come a few weeks down the road. The axe blow that had killed Yorin had split his skull apart, but the great tangled beard could be no one else's, or the garb, patched unwashed and so faded, it was more gray than black. Oh shit, man. Did Rorge kill Yorin with the axe that Arya gave him? At question mark? Uh, we'll find out together in Arya, Clash of Kings Arya 5, but yes, absolutely. Rorge totally <laughs> fucking killed Yorn at the end of this battle. We'll talk a bit more about it as we get to Yorn's body in Arya 5, and then again when Rorge pops back up at Heron Hall. But yeah, I really love this theory. It seems to fit so well with what a lot of the writing George does that even though there's this omnipresent threat around Yorn, the one who kills him isn't any of the Lannister men. It's the one of the people, one of his charges, the ones he was trying to protect, the one he assumed you know would never do any harm to him. It fits Rorge because he's just violent in all directions, even to people trying to help him. Like Arya saves his life, but he'll still threaten her later in the Clash of Kings without any hesitation for it. And I, I like that it's just that, that it's just implied, and maybe that this is how Rorge ended up in the good graces of the Lannister soldiers. When next we see him, he is he's, he's mm-hmm. joined the Lannister ranks. Maybe this is his how he he got an in with them was by turning so violently on Yorin. And it fits Arya's story too, this kind of way she's wrapped up in death despite her best intentions, if she is indirectly responsible for the death of her mentor who did so much for her. I do I do like that. Well, not like that, but you know what I mean. <laughs> I do know what you mean, absolutely. So I think that about wraps us up for our foreshadowing groundwork. Again, this chapter is much more action-oriented, so we don't have a lot of setup for things coming down the road, just a few things there. But for our theory and discussion portion of this week's episode, we figured we would kind of walk back and talk about a question that we got from one of our sworn swords, Sir Josh B. Absolutely. Josh B. asks, Amory Lord's question, sneaky combining multiple Arya chapters. We apologize <laughs> for nothing. I've often been interested how in the fandom, Amory Lorch seems to take a backseat to Gregor Clegane. In A Clash of Kings, I think of Lorch as just as big of a war criminal as Clegane, but he tends to be ignored in most of the commentary I've heard. Have you noticed the same, and why do you think that is? I think as Arya points out the indistinct appearance of the tickler adds to his monstrous nature, I would think a similar thing would apply to Lorch. Well, great question, great question, Sir Josh. Thank you very much for it. And I have noticed that. Amory Lorch does not come up nearly as much in the discussion as Lord Tywin's other mad dogs, Gregor and also a Vargo Hote. And Amory is a prominent monster in the backstory, not only in murdering Princess Rhaenys Targaryen, but also semi-canonically committing child murder in the Rain Tarbeck conflict. I think that lacks the, the the more kind of mythic echoes of Gregor's backstory, in which he's basically Bluebeard. And George never like stops the story dead to focus on Amory. You know, he doesn't. He never stops the story dead to outline the precise precariousness of Amory's situation, as he does with Vargo Hope the third head of Lord Tywin's terrible trinity, where when Roos is talking with Jaime in A Storm of Swords, George just, like, stops the story so Roos can explain exactly how Vargo Hood is screwed, because you can tell he just got really interested into the plotting of it. Fargo also has a more distinct personality than Amory Lorch, and again, 
his revenge plot with Jamie and Brienne is, is just feels more kind of emotional and is a, is a link to that character. The main reason Lorch doesn't work the same way as the Tickler is that his worst acts are in the backstory. Whereas Gregor and Vargo's men dominate the, the current day atrocities. Amory Lorch, I think you could even say he's redundant, but he has a yeah. couple of plot purposes besides wiping Yorin off the map and thus redirecting Arya's storyline. He provides fodder for a crucial reversal later in the book, wherein she feels like she's gained vengeance for Yorin when Amory loses Harrenhal to Northmen and is fed to a bear. A black bear, of course, like the, the same color as, as Yorin's uh, cloak. Hell yeah. But, but it turns out, of course, that those Northmen work for Roose Bolton, and they lured the Bloody Mummers away from Tywin, and they just keep bringing the pain to the small folk all around Arya, just like the Lannisters did. Amory also allows Tywin to attempt to redirect blame for the atrocities against Rhaegar's family away from Gregor, which is, as we'll argue come a storm of swords, a very revealing move on Tywin's part, very revealing in terms of his priorities, and he wouldn't be able to even try to do that if if Amory Lorch didn't exist, if you know what I mean. And on the whole, I think the reason Sir Amory doesn't get much attention is that he he falls between the cracks of a couple different kinds of villains. He's not quite the flamboyant evil of someone like Gregor, but he's he doesn't really quite have the banality of someone like the Tickler either. He's over the top and not quite enough to stand out. I think he's one of the series' less memorable villains, but, you know, not everyone can be interesting in themselves. <laughs> Sometimes someone just has to serve the plot, and I think that's what Amory Lorch is. Yeah, I think you've, you've brought up a number of excellent points about why Amory Lorch doesn't get the same sort of negative opinion that fans have. And you also brought up Bruce Bolton and how he conducts himself with Amory at Harrenhal. Spot on, as always. And that gives me the chance to talk about another character parallel. Steel Shanks Walton, who I absolutely love as a super minor character in this story. So sad he wasn't in the Game of Thrones show, but whatever. He's Bannerman to Roose Bolton, just a normal soldier guy, right? And as Jamie thinks about him in A Storm of Swords, Jamie 6, Steel Shanks Walton commanded Jamie's escort. Blunt, brusque, brutal at heart, a simple soldier. Jamie had served with this sort all his life. Men like Walton would kill at their lord's command, rape when their blood was up after battle, and plunder wherever they could. But once the war was done, they could go back to their homes, trade their spears for hoes, wed their, wed their neighbor's daughters, and raise a pack of squalling children. Such men obeyed without question. But the deep, malignant cruelty of the brave companions was not part of their nature. But I, I do agree that with you, Emmett, that George is not going for a banality of evil critique in Amory. That's definitely the Tickler character. But I think he's going for a critique of the guy who even Bronn would look askance at. Remember Tyrion 2 we did with Clayton a few weeks ago? Tyrion was a little drunk and very tired. Tell me, Bronn, if I told you to kill a babe, an infant girl, say, still at her mother's breast, would you do it? Without question? Without question? No. Seltzer rubbed thumb and forefinger together. I'd ask how much. So, so at the very least, and I mean that, at the very, very least, <laughs> Bronn has a code that might prevent the murder of innocents and of the murder of children. But for Amory, he's willing to throw a three-year-old boy down well, down a well, stab a three-year-old girl like Rhaenys Targaryen, and murder members of the Night's Watch. All because, you know, he's got orders from Tywin Lannister, right? I mean, that's, that's all his, his driving motivation. And I think the critique of characters like Amory Lorch in this in the series and Steel Shanks Walton is the kind of crit criticism of the unquestioned acquiescence to authority, an authority in the cases of Tywin Lannister and Roose Bolton that is fundamentally evil, evil man. I mean, it's it's evil that the that the High Lords are able to play their Game of Thrones, but Roose Bolton and Tywin Lannister play the Game of Thrones in a particularly brutal fashion, and they've got unquestioning underlings who are able to carry out unethical, immoral, evil orders on their behalf without question well said sir and i agree that's probably what george is going for uh, the problem is for me again amory is kind of falling in between because he's not quite steel shanks walton in terms of like the deep malignant cruelty of the brave companions not being in him no that deep malignant cruelty of the brave companions very much is in amory lorch <laughs> as tywin says there was no explanation for why he stabbed princess Rhaenys like 50 times mm -hmm. so I, I, but but on the other hand again he doesn't have the the, the standout scenes and backstory as, as gregor so he he doesn't really, for me, fulfill every archetype perfectly. But he does serve his job very effectively in this chapter. I do do hate him and want him to see him die, <laughs> as, as you do for what happens to Yorin. But then we get that great reversal of that when the people who kill him turn out to be no better. They turn out to be the kind of the same people in the case mm -hmm. of the Brave Companions. And from here on in, our focus is not going to be so much on Amory Lorch. When it comes to the Reavers of the Riverlands, it's going to be much more so on Gregor Clegane and his men and the Brave Companions. And I don't want to say that's more fun, because it's definitely not. <laughs> But it is, I, I think, that, that I think is where George uh, more fully realizes these villainous characters and more kind of concretely expresses what they say about the world around them. I can agree there, my friend. 
So thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere you find your podcasts. Check out our Patreon if you haven't already at patreon.com forward slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. Follow us on Twitter at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F or shoot us an email at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can follow me at Port Quentin on Twitter. And you can follow me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsviceandfire.wordpress.com. We want to give a shout out and thank you to our high lords and ladies on Patreon, Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lord Clint Esquire, the Wolf in the West, Sir Sorcedelica, Lady Veneris of the House Colgarian, first of her name, the overworked Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser and the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portraitist of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Creator of Arts and Maker of Drawings, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Nerebold, the Shoeless Sage, Lady Madeline Rivers, just to see our of the Trident, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys, and Lady of Jameson, Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Lord Timothy Yu, Sir Courtenay, What Did the Five Fingers Say to the Face Penrose, and our newest High Lady, Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill. Thank you so much to our High Lords and Ladies, and welcome to Lady Dillsdale. Absolutely. Thank you guys so, so much for your support, and welcome to Lady Dillsdale. <laughs> Dillsdale. Lady Dillsdale. God damn it, I'm sorry. I apologize. Uh, <laughs> we really appreciate it. Yeah, she just signed up today, so that's really, really cool. Really, really appreciate it. So, join us next week for Clash of Kings Tyrion 3, in which the Lannisters react to his grace King Stannis, that Baratheon's letter declaring them traitors. Fuck yeah, that's righteous. And Tyrion begins work on a project for his metalworking class in high school that probably won't turn out to be important at all. Already we're getting set up for the Blackwater, folks. You can tell how much George loves his definitive contribution to fantasy battles to date because he starts seeding in all the the little elements he's going to need in place very early on in the book. And one of the, the big ones is Tyrion's chain, but we'll get to all of that in detail next week for Clash of Kings Tyrion 3. Absolutely. So thank you so much for listening, and we will see you guys next week.